you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. So we're covering, I guess this is part three of the Toyn with Cooling, which I will just refer to as the Toyn. It's the Cattle Raid of Cooley. It is an ancient Irish epic, and it's sort of the centerpiece of old Irish legend and lore and mythos, mythology. And we've basically covered Cucullin's early years, which is not saying that much because the kid's only like 17 at this point. Like he's still a teenager insofar as we see who teenagers are nowadays. They didn't have that idea. You basically went from being small child to small adult and then slightly larger adult. So Cucullin is not that old, but we've gone through his exploits. We've gone through him killing people. We've gone through him having a tryst with Fedelm, the sorceress. And we're going to be seeing him having another tryst or an attempted tryst this episode, which we'll get into in a minute. We've seen Fergus trying to keep Aleel and Maeve on the right track. And don't forget, listeners, that this entire thing has come about because Aleel and Maeve, who are king and queen together of Connacht, decided to compare their wealth and Maeve could not find a bull that was as nice as her husband's. So she's like, now I need a bowl to prove myself because she's compensating for something. We're not quite sure what, but she's compensating. <laughs> so that is the background of the toying. That's basically what we've covered. We've covered a little bit about Irish magic and the fact that Cucullin has to be good at magic, fighting, and poetry, which is analogous to a lot of the Viking sagas, which we've also covered. So you have to be good with your speech craft, you have to be good with magic, and you also have to be good at your warcraft. So that's sort of what you need to do to be a well-rounded individual in both Old Irish and Old Icelandic and Nordic culture. So let's go ahead and dive in. So this week we're going to talk about the Morrigan episode, and then we're going to get into Cucullin's first like warp spasm. So this will be the first time that he like hulks out on us. So again, I'm using, today I'm using the Faraday version because that is a little bit more concise, but we've got both versions available for you from both the Yellow Book of Lakehan and the Book of Ulster, I believe it is. So those are available on the website, on the blog. So check those out if you want to follow along with us and I will just dive in. So this is the Morrigan episode. Then Cucullin saw draw near to him a young woman with a dress of every color about her, and her appearance was most surpassing in beauty. Who art thou? Cucullin asked. The daughter of Buan the Eternal, the king, she answered. And whoever this king is, he's sort of, again, a mythological figure. I don't believe he was actually known as a king at this time, but there are a bunch of different kings of Ireland at this time in the different areas, the different counties, essentially, of Ireland. So she's calling herself the daughter of Buan, the eternal, the king. I am come to thee. I have loved thee for the high tales they tell of thee, and have brought my treasures and cattle with me. Not good is the time thou hast come, says Cucullin. Is not our condition weakened through hunger? Not easy then would it be for me to foregather with a woman uh, the while I am engaged in this struggle. And this is how Faraday translates it. The more precise 
translation of this particular saying that gets the emotion and gets the language of the old Irish is, yeah, it's not for a woman's ass that I'm out here. So, (laughs) yeah, so he's saying like, hold up, honey, like, I didn't come out here. I'm not on the battlefield for a woman's ass. I'm actually trying to save my people. And this is not a good time for you to be coming on to me at the minute. What did you say? Foregather? Yes. I've never... I've never heard this phrase either yet. It says, not easy then would it be for me to foregather with a woman. I think uh, Faraday's making up words. Apparently, the dictionary app on my computer tells me that it is a real word coming from the 15th century from the Scots. Oh. So there you go. It's a real word. But he is being prissy about it, which is why I give you the alternate translation, (laughs) which is... I'm not here to get frisky with you. And mind you, do you have any guesses as to who this is? Let's see. I feel like if we're going with traditional fairy tale structure, this is probably like Maeve's daughter or something. Close. Well, sort of. You're getting the fancy woman correct. This is the Morrigan. Oh, right. You did say <laughs> So yeah, this is this is the Morgan appearing to Kakolan and saying like, "Hey, let's get it on before battle." Oh well, that explains why she's into him just because he hulks out and kills people. That does sound like it's kind of the Morgan's thing. Exactly. Yeah, she's like, "Hey, you hulk out. You're super hot. You've killed a bunch of people. I'm the goddess of war." Let's do this. So for those who are less familiar with the Morrigan, she is known as the Morrigan. And I'll talk a little bit more about her later. But she's basically the Irish goddess of war and doom and disaster. She shape changes quite often. And we're going to see her do that in just a minute. And she also has connotations with the fertility goddess, whom we've talked about before, and also the goddess of the land of Ireland as well. So she has a lot of bigger connotations than just being a goddess of war. So in any case, Cucullin tells her like, no. And she says, well, I have come to you for help. She continues on and says, then it shall be thy lot when I come against thee, what time thou art contending with men. In the shape of an eel, I will come beneath thy feet in the ford, so that you will fall. And Cucullin, <laughs> an eel, apparently, is what is what she picks. Yes, that's very threatening. Not like, I will come before thee in a dangerous shape, so I'm going to make you fall over. I'm going to be an inconvenience. I hear you. But also consider the implication of the serpent in the garden. Okay, that's fair. You've got a serpent who's going to bite Adam's heel. And here you have an instance of the Morrigan who is going to turn into an eel and make him fall around his feet. Okay. Okay. So I could see an analog there, but... I leave it to you. And so Kukulin responds and says, more likely than that, methinks, than daughter of a king. So he's now recognizing, like, this woman's talking about shape changing. She's not the daughter of a king. This is someone else. And he says, I will seize thee in the fork of my toes till thy ribs are broken, and thou shalt remain in such sorry plight till there come my sentence of blessing upon thee. I feel like this is not the appropriate response. (laughs) So she threatens him by turning into an eel, 
And he says, yeah, sure, I'll just grab you with my toes and crush you under my feet. And so again, she comes at him and says, in the shape of a gray she-wolf, I will drive the cattle onto the forehead against you. And he responds by saying, I will cast a stone from my sling at thee so that it smashes your eye into your head and you will remain so maimed till my sentence of blessing comes upon thee. So this is number two. This is threat number two and response number two. And we do know that Kukulin is very good with his sling. He's killed several charioteers this way. So (laughs) we have seen this before. And finally, she says, I will attack thee in the shape of a hornless red heifer at the head of the cattle so that they will overwhelm thee on the waters and fords and pools and thou wilt not see me before thee. I will, replied Cacullin, fling a stone at thee and that will break thy leg under you and you will thus be lamed until my sentence of blessing come upon you. Why a cow? I don't exactly know, especially a heifer, which is a female cow. She's not turning into a bull, which I suppose makes sense because she she keeps her gender as she as she changes shape. Yeah, I was I was gonna say like she did say she wolf, and I guess she didn't specify what kind of eel. What kind but of I fish? Think we can yeah. assume. <laughs> Probably a she eel. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, Loki changes gender, but that I mean that is a different set of legends, but. You know, gods can change shape and some change gender. We don't really see that in the Greek myths and we don't see it here. So anyway, she's going to become a heifer. Why she picks a cow, I don't know. I, I'm i a little bit confused about the Irish dedication to cow lore because this entire story has to do with going after a big bull. Yeah. And it is well established in like the Tooth of Dedanon and the stories about the gods that the Morrigan does change into a heifer or a cow. It's fairly well established. Why? I don't know. I, I haven't been able to find that much research on that, but it's fairly well established in the literature that she does quite often turn into a cow. There is something of a bovine fixation in this Yeah, story. read into that what you will. I don't understand. I mean, cattle are a major source of produce. I mean, they keep Ireland together now. I mean, we think of Ireland as being a place for sheep and they have a lot of sheep now, but cows were a really big drive and profit to ancient Ireland. So I suppose that's part of it is that that's sort of a a symbol of power was a cow. But I mean, she also turns into a raven, which sort of clicks more with the idea of the beasts of battle. Yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to explain beasts of battle? Yes. All right. So in Old English poetry and in a lot of neighboring cultures, whenever they're describing battle, they will mention the beasts of battle. That is the animals that basically show up to scavenge the bodies of the dead on the battlefield. And there are three of them. It's the raven, the wolf, and the eagle, or the sea eagle, as it's usually translated to make sure we know which type of eagle for whatever reason. And so... The Morgan is often associated with the ravens. Mm-hmm. I have wondered if she is the inspiration behind the Raven Queen in D&D. Oh, totally. I, I would say so. Yeah. I would definitely say so. Especially because we also have, like, Valkyrie tradition as well. Right. Yes. So, like, that plus the Morgan, you kind of put those together and you get the Raven Queen. Yeah. So she's heavily associated with the ravens, and she's already said that she's going to turn into a wolf. 
Mm-hmm. And then the eel and the cow, as far as I know, are not among the beasts of battle in any tradition. Not that I'm aware of, but we do... There is not a lot of eagle imagery in Irish lore and legends, so I would say they swap out the eagle for the cow. Do but you cows still have... come to scavenge at the battlefield? Well, I, I mean, you don't have the beast of battle motif in Irish literature as much, but you do... My point is is that they do have certain associations with different gods, and mm. ravens and wolves and cattle are what the Morrigan is associated with, and she is associated with war. All right. Plus, I mean, you don't want to be standing in the way of a charging bull. That's true, but she is very specifically not turning into a bull. No, but she's turning into a heifer who's going to lead the rest of the cattle towards Kukulin to rampage him. What's the word that I'm thinking Stampede? of? Stampede? Stampede. That is what I'm... Yes, exactly. Okay. That makes it more threatening now that you describe it that way. I can see the issue. I mean, she, I guess you could argue that she's taking like the lead heifer, the lead queen cow position at the head of this herd and will lead them in charge against Kukulin. That's how she's framing it anyway. And he's responding by saying, well, I'm just going to lame your legs so you can't charge me. And what you going to do? So they have this sort of back and forth with one another. And she just disappears. On the morrow, the next morning, went a guy called Long. His name is literally just Long. So Long goes to the ford of battle and seeks combat with Kukulin. And Kukulin slew him, and they brought him dead into the presence of his brother, namely of Loch. So we have Long and Loch. Loch like lake, essentially. Mm-hmm. They're getting very creative with these names. And Loch came forth and raised up his loud, quick voice and cried, had he known it was a bearded man that slew him, he would slay him for it. So again, this goes back to Kukulin not being able to grow a beard and putting on fake beards. Yeah, is he still wearing the fake one? Yeah, yeah, apparently at this point he's still got the fake beard at this point because no one's going to fight a beardless man. Because again, he's only 17. It hasn't really you know come in for him yet. And it was in the presence of Maeve that he said this. Lead a battle force against him, Maeve cried to her host, over the ford from the west so that you may cross and let the law of fair fight be broken with Kukulin. Then seven main warriors went first till they saw him west of the edge of the ford. He wore his festive raiment on that day and the women clambered on the men that they might behold him. So apparently like the men are lifting their ladies up to see the glory that is Kukulin in all his fine clothes. It grieves me, said Maeve. I cannot see the boy because of whom go there. Thy mind would not be the easier for that, quoth Lethrim, Aleel's horse boy, if thou should see him. Cucullin came to the ford as he was. What man is that yonder, O Fergus? asked Maeve. And Maeve, too, climbed on the men to get a look at him. So <laughs> I, I am baffled by Cucullin's apparent, like, extreme sex appeal. <laughs> He's a scrawny 17-year-old who can't grow a beard and then hulks out into a monster. Yeah, exactly. I'm a little confused by (laughs) how he is both the way that he's been described and also apparently a chick magnet. Apparently. So much so that these women are going to the men and saying, hey, let me get on your shoulders because I really want to see that hunk over there. Like, forget you. You just lift me up so I can see him. So... Then Maeve called upon her handmaid for two woven bands, 50 or twice 50 of her women to go speak with Kukulin and to charge him to put a false beard on. So again, <laughs> like, 
This clean-shaven 17-year-old kid is just getting all the women of the opposing army just too excited. The women troop went their way to Kukulin and told him to put a false beard on if he wished to engage in battle or combat with goodly warriors or the goodly use of the men of Erin, which is Ireland. That sport was made of him in the camp that he had no beard and no good warrior would go to meet with him except madmen. It were easier to make a false beard, for no brave warrior in the camp thinks it seemly to come and fight with thee, because you're beardless, said they. If that please me, said Cucullin, then I shall do it. Thereupon Cucullin took a handful of grass, and speaking a spell over it, he bedaubed, which is the greatest use of this word I've ever heard, he bedaubed himself a beard in order to obtain combat with a man, namely Loch. And he came over the knoll. Wait, wait, wait. Did he enchant the grass? Is that what happened? So it looks like a beard? Or is it still just grass that stuck to his face? No, he took a handful of grass and, like, sticks it on his face with a spell to make it look like a beard. Okay. Yeah. So, again, we're seeing Kukulin being the hero of the story in that he's a great fighter and he can negotiate with anyone and he can also work magic. But apparently he can't grow a beard. Like, that is beyond him. Well... He is a teenager. True, true. So he comes over the knoll, he comes over the hill, and the whole host is arrayed in front of them, and he stands there so that everyone can see him, and so it looks like he's got a real beard. "'Tis true," spake the women, "'Cucullin has a beard. It is fitting for a warrior to fight with him.' And they urged Loch to go and fight him, and Loch looks at him and says, "'Why, that is a beard on Cucullin!' It is what I perceive, says Maeve, and Maeve promised the same great terms to Locke to put a check on Cucullin. I will not undertake the fight till the end of seven days from this day, exclaimed Locke. Not fitting is it for us to leave that man unattacked for all that time, Maeve answered. Let us put a warrior every night to spy upon him, and so we can get another chance at him. So, and Cucullin kills them all. So... <laughs> The, the ones who are spying on him each night. Yes, yes, exactly. So to sum this one up, all the women of the camp see Kukulin, think he's hot stuff, but none of the men will go fight him because he's a beardless young kid. So Kukulin magics himself up a fake beard, and when everyone else sees it, they're like, oh, wow, Kukulin's grown a beard. We can fight him now. And so... Locke declares that he'll fight him in a week's time. And Maeve's like, well, I can't have that. We can't just l let him sit there in, a in all that time. So he sends men out to try and slay Kukulin and they all fail. Because, and let's, because I don't think we've mentioned this in this episode yet. In previous episodes, Kukulin has been very much characterized as a dangerous psychopath. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> anyone around him is probably going to die. Essentially. And it's amazing to me that they're having such discourse between the two sides. Because all yeah. of the rest of the Ulster men are, quote, in their pains, which to remind everyone is this weird period pain PMS symptom that they have where they can't fight. So the only person who is unaffected and who's worthy of fighting is Kukulin. So it's Kukulin and then the rest of the Connacht men with Aaliyah and Maeve. And they're just, it seems like they're just like on opposite hills, just shouting at each other this entire time. So that's, that's how I'm picturing it. It is interesting that they're basically scheduling a fight. Like, I feel like that's not how battle works the way we're familiar with it. Oh, definitely not us. Especially with guerrilla warfare and, you know, the rise of, of terror and things like that. It's like, okay, catch everybody by surprise. But 
We see it in the Iliad. We see it in the legend of Horatius at the bridge in Roman culture. There's a bunch of instances of this in in Rome where you do schedule a fight between individual people so that you don't have entire armies go against each other. Because like, let's face it, the population wasn't that great at that time. And if you kill all of your men, then, you know, you have to, you have to make that up somehow. And that's going to be with the next generation. So you do kind of want to preserve your manpower. I wonder if that's the source of the focus on honor in battle that a lot of those ancient cultures had, is they're trying to avoid depopulating each other. I mean, I'd, I'd wager so. And then, you know, you also have ideas of masculinity and what it is to be a man. So when, when you combine the two and, and then you sort of get this idea of, okay, well, we want to keep our men. We want to be able to protect those who can't fight, the elderly, women, children, you know, in, in that society. Then I would say so. You, you start getting a culture of honor and you start getting a culture of like how to fight well and not stabbing people in the back. I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably why poison is traditionally a woman's weapon because women couldn't fight and it wasn't honorable to kill someone without letting them know that you're going to kill them. It's true. Uh, To go back to the sagas for a second, one of the interesting things about Icelandic law that comes up a lot in the sagas is that there's a difference between killing and murder. Yes. Oh, this is really interesting. Yeah. And like, there is a set of requirements. It's not something like you can only kill someone if you're a soldier, like the way we think of it now, where there's a killing in the line of duty, like if you're at war, and then everything else is homicide and illegal. Uh, Rather, you have to do it honorably. So if you kill someone at night, it's murder. Mm -hmm. If you uh, kill them by stealth, it's murder. And also, there's a bunch of rules for after you kill him, you have to follow a specific procedure in order for it to be legal, which is Mm -hmm. pretty simple. I think it's you have to cover the body so that scavengers don't get to it. And you have to go to the nearest, specifically the nearest farmstead or household where you will not be in danger. Yes. And tell them who you are and who you killed. So, like, you can't do it secretly. It all has to be out in the open. And if you do that, then it's not murder. It's just killing, and it's punishable by a fine paid to their heirs instead of by outlawry or something. Yeah, yeah. Which is an extraordinarily detailed law code. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that. Like, we... We think of this stuff, and again, it's portrayed in the media as like, oh, well, the Vikings just went around killing everybody, and you could kill anybody, and as long as you were strong, you could get away with it, survival of the fittest. It's like, no, 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 no. There was a very detailed law code over how to deal with feud and so that it didn't get out of hand. Like, that was the entire point, was so that you could find recompense. And if you really needed to kill somebody, you could. There's also a really cool old English, I think it's old English, yeah, law called Merdram, which is like a murder, but not quite. Merdram is after an unknown man, like a foreigner, has been found dead. What do you do? Can you find the culprit? And if you cannot, then the entire group, the village, whatever area you're in, has to pay a fine for that. And so it's a way to sort of create group justice for someone who is not known in that society. Oh, oh, that's actually quite interesting. It's, I think it's very interesting. If a foreigner comes by your village and ends up dead, you have to either find out who killed him or the whole village pays a fine 
for yes. basically not being a safe place for people to go. Exactly. Yes. And let's see. It was, according to Wikipedia, it was introduced into English law by the Danes. That tracks. Yep. All right. And then the other really cool, interesting early English law thing that I really enjoy is the hue and cry. Hang on. Speaking of hue and cry. I know, right? Dublin is a... Actually, Dublin's not that loud of a city, but sometimes the sirens get on get on my nerves. Okay, so the hue and cry, uh, it's, it's a phrase that we you probably have heard, but you probably don't know where it came from. The hue and cry is a process by which bystanders would assist in the law or the apprehension of a criminal. So if you find a dead body, for instance, or if you if you see a murderum or whatever's going on, you have to go to the nearest farm, you have to go to the nearest group of people and raise a hue and cry. You have to literally shout and make a fuss so that the law will be enacted. So it's basically like reporting it, except instead of going to your local police station, you go into the center of your village and start screaming about it. Well, I mean, this is before they invented cops. Yeah. (laughs) Back in the golden days. (laughs) Oh, boy. So... In any case, to get back to the narrative, yeah, we have we have this idea of honor and who's going to fight Kukulin. We can't just let Kukulin sit there without anybody to fight, especially now that he's got a beard, apparently. So they send people to try and kill him, and every single night, it does not work, which some of these names are fantastic, by the way. So I pulled out two of the names of messengers who were sent to Kukulin about what was going on at this time. And one of them is Tragten, which means strongfoot. And he is son of Traglethan, which is broadfoot, which reminded me of hobbits. So I just wanted to throw that in there. So (laughs) (laughs) So you've got strongfoot and broadfoot. And I just wanted to highlight those names because I think they're fantastic and you could probably use them somehow. All right. Especially if you have like a, a fighter in a, in a ring, you just need to like throw out a name. You can, you can call him Strongfoot or Broadfoot or whatever. Okay, so then these are the messengers that go to Kukulin because uh, Maeve wants to, you know, keep this fight going. So Kukulin comes to meet her, that is to say Maeve, and the men rise against him and 14 spears are hurled at him at the same time. And the hound, Kukulin, defends himself so that neither his skin nor his protection, his armor, is touched and he turns in upon them and kills them all, the 14 men who attacked him. Hence, these are the names of the 14 men of Fokar. So again, you have Dinshanicus and how this place got its name. So again, then this this is a callback, I think, to when Kukulin is fighting the, the little kids who he encroaches on their game. And so they all take their little, their sticks and chuck their sticks at him. And he apparently t- picks up a shield and deflects them all in some like super anime move. And so they all go flying back. So he's basically repeating this, except instead of having clubs and sticks for Kamoji for hurling, instead now it's just spears, straight up spears. Also, I like the phrase when Kukulin is fighting the little kids and what it says about this story. (laughs) Yeah. And mind you, he was younger than those other kids at the time, which just makes it all the more ridiculous. Yeah. It it was later that he killed a bunch of them. Yes. That was a different incident where he fought a bunch of kids. (laughs) Come on, Kukulin, man. Okay. Then it was that the Morrigan 
the daughter of Aid Emas, came from the fairy dwellings to destroy Kukulin, for she had threatened on the cattle raid of Ryogman, which is a different story, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later, that she would come to undo Kukulin what time he would be in sore distress and engaged in battle and in combat with a goodly warrior, that is, Loch, in the course of the cattle raid. Also, he did turn her down. This is true, and that is actually extraordinarily important. Because, hang on, I have my document for this. Because there's some fantastic articles about it. And so while we're on it. So this is from Aspects of the Morrigan in Early Irish Literature by Rosalind Clark. Essentially, she notes that when the Morrigan offers you sex, you do not reject it. Because it is, it's an omen of victory. She's giving you her grace and her favor in whatever battle is coming up. I mean, I feel like that, you know that line in Ghostbusters, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. (laughs) I feel like that just applies also if, if a goddess offers to sleep with you, you say yes. You say yes. Yeah. And actually going on to the Tain Boregamna, which is the other story, which is being referenced here, the cattle raid of Ryogman, it's the same thing. The Morrigan states that she has just mated the cow with the Don Cooling, and that shall cause the cattle raid of Cooley, and that Kukulin will not live one year after the cow's calf is born. So if you want to take a broad view of Irish lore in general, you've got this other story where the Morrigan is starting the cattle raid of Cooley. So she's starting the entire toyne, So essentially. She's practicing animal husbandry to create this amazing cow with the knowledge that eventually there'll be a fight over it. Yes, essentially so. I kind of respect that. I like it. I mean, it's a really, it's a diverse way of being the goddess of war. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. think about it from that perspective. Like, if you're going to do, like, a world-building perspective, hey, you can have a goddess of war who's really, really good at animal husbandry. So you can have a bunch of farmers who worship her, but you can also have a bunch of soldiers who worship her because you never know when she's going to use her animal husbandry skills to start a war. Yeah, I feel like war goddesses often have diverse portfolios. Athena was good at all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who else? I'm trying to think of other... I mean, Hera. (laughs) Well, Hera, yes. (laughs) I love her so much. This poor woman. Poor goddess. Oh, man. So, yeah. So, we have some inter-Irish lore going on here. So, thither then the Morrigan came in the shape of a white, hornless, red-eared heifer, with fifty heifers about her, and a chain of silvered bronze between each two of the heifers. She burst upon the pools and fords at the head of the cattle, and it was then that Cucullin said, I cannot see the fords for the waters, which I suppose is like saying I can't see the forest for the trees. He can't figure out what's going on around him because all of these cattle just chucked themselves out of the woods onto the field of battle. And the women came with their strange sorcery and constrained Kukulin by Geish and by inviolable bonds to check the heifer for them, lest she should escape from him without harm. So Kukulin made an unerring cast from his sling stick at her so that he shattered one of Morgan's eyes. So we've got a lot going on in this very short section. Yes. <laughs> what? So... 
The Morrigan turns herself into a white heifer with red ears. Why that is specified, I'm not quite sure. I think it probably has to do with the red bull and the white bull, and she's presenting as both, but I don't know that is a totally baseless proposition. That's just where I, I where I went with it. I bet it's a translation thing because probably like I know that in Old Icelandic there are a lot of single words that describe like a specific pattern of uh, coloration on a horse. So it may be that white heifer with red ears is a weirdly long phrase in English, but in Old Irish maybe it was just a single word. So it was like it was like saying a brown cow. That checks out. That would actually check out. See, this is why you're the linguist. You're so good with this stuff. I mean, I'm entirely guessing. (laughs) I think it's a better guess than mine, because I was going for some sort of symbology, which doesn't really fit. Anyway, so she shows up, and Cacullin can't see the field of battle around him while he's trying to get out to the field and battle these people. And apparently, the women of the camp on his side cast some sort of magic upon him by geish, which is basically a really powerful word. It's like an oath. You're invoking somebody to do something in a certain way or to never go here or you're constraining them in some manner. And so Mm -hmm. in this case, it's a positive geish so that he can hurt the heifer basically to attack Morrigan and do it well. And so then Kukulin makes this shot with his sling and he shatters one of the Morrigan's eyes. So we're seeing the fulfillment of one of the three forms already. Although Kukulin didn't quite follow through, he was supposed to put a stone in the wolf's eye and break the heifer's leg, but he got, yes. he's apparently gotten it wrong. Apparently. Now when the men met on the ford and began to fight and struggle, and when each of them was about to strike the other, the Morrigan came thither in the shape of a slippery black eel down the stream. Then she came on the lynn and she coiled three folds and twists around the two feet and thighs and forks. I'm assuming this is like the forks of his feet as in his toes mm-hmm. of Kukulin till he was lying on his back athwart the ford, which again is a fantastic word, athwart. Uh, so yeah, he's lying on his back with his legs and arms in the air. And while Kukulin was busy trying to free himself, Loch wounded him crosswise through the breast so that the spear went through him and the ford was gore red with blood. Ill indeed, cried Fergus, is this deed in the face of the foe. Let some of ye taunt him, ye men, to the end that he will not fall in vain. Are they taunting Cucullin or Locke? I believe they're taunting Cucullin. Is it ill that he fell over or ill that Locke didn't wait for him to get up? I'm not entirely sure. The text is not super clear. I think what they're doing is they're sort of doing what boxers do in terms of like shouting insults to keep the fight going. To be like, you know, get up, you piece of trash. What are you doing being twisted about by an eel? But none of them actually realize that this is the Morgan in disguise. They think he just fell over. So they're like, oh, this was a really short fight. Wait a minute. We wanted more. (laughs) That's how I would read it. I've never seen a boxing match. I didn't realize that was part of the expectation. I mean, I don't actively watch boxing or MMA, but I have been to several sparring sessions and trash talking is a big part of it. So, hang on. Sorry, his name is ridiculous. Rikru Nepthenga. <laughs> hey, I live in Ireland and they can't even get half of the names right because the spellings are so ridiculous. But hey, Irish is being taught again in schools here, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, especially since the English, when they 
took over Ireland basically outlawed any Irish. And so a lot of the language, Gaelga, stopped being spoken. So you can find there are some radio stations now that are completely Ash Gaelga. They're completely in Irish, which is really cool. It's a beautiful language. I really love listening to it, even though I don't know what any of it says. Oh, it's great that that's happening. Yeah. So then Brikru Nemthenga, which is of the venom tongue, arose and began to revile Kukulun. Thy strength has gone from thee, he said, when a little salmon overthrows thee even now, when the Ulstermen are about come out of their pains. Hard would it be for thee to take on warrior's deeds in the presence of the men of Aaron and repel a stout warrior clad in his armor. So why it's a salmon here and not an eel, I don't know. But it is an insult, so I'm assuming it has to do with, like, oh, it's not an eel, it's just a fish. Get over yourself. Or maybe they they can't really tell what happened. They're just like, did you step on a fish? <laughs> Who knows? Like, okay, why would they be fighting in salmon run season? But that's beside the point. Why are they fighting in a stream? Also that, that's okay. That's a really good point. But we've seen this multiple times. I mean, you've got Horatius at the bridge. Like Horatius literally like ends up being chucked into the river. And then you've got Achilles who literally fights the river. Yes. So... But, like, this was a scheduled battle, so they must have decided to fight in the water. Like, we're gonna do this, man. We're just, it's gonna add to the drama of it all. Okay. Then, at this incitation, Kukulin arose, and with his left heel, he smote the eel on the head so that its ribs broke within it, and he destroyed one half of its brains after smashing half of its head. And the cattle were driven by force past the host to the east, and they even carried away the tents on their horns at the thunder feet of the two warriors made on the ford. Okay, I see why uh, that made you think of Genesis now. Yeah, yeah. Because there is a smashing of the head and yeah. the he, you know, he heel issue going on. your head and you shall bruise his heel bruise his or heel. something like that. Yeah. Then Morrigan next came in the form of a rough, gray-red bitch wolf with wide open jaws. And she bit Kukulin in the arm and drove the cattle against him westwards. And Kukulin made a cast of his little javelin at her, which is the gay Golga, strongly, vehemently, so that it shattered one eye in her head. During this space of time, whether long or short, while Kukulin was engaged with freeing himself, Loch wounded him through the loins. Thereupon, Kukulin chanted a lay. Then did Kukulin to the Morrigan the three things that he had threatened her on the cattle raid of Rogan. He did not. He got all three of them wrong. He didn't get all three of them wrong. He was supposed to break the eel's ribs with his toes, but he did it with his heel. He was supposed to knock out the wolf's eye with a stone, but he used a javelin. He was supposed to get the stone against the cow's leg, but he hit it in the eye. In the eye. That's true. That is true. I have nothing to say to that, but he he did the broad (laughs) sweeping things. He wounded Morrigan, just not in the way he said he would. I I feel like he's not really a precision fighter. Like, he can't call his shots. (laughs) He's just... You know, he's, he's, he's just oh, a, a, a berserk. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a barbarian class warrior. Okay. And so when all this is going on, Kukulin finally gets up on his feet again and takes his gay bolga, the barbed spear, so that it passes through his heart and into his breast. For truly, it must have been that Kukulin could not suffer the treacherous blows and violence of Lochmore the warrior. And he called for the gay bolga from Leg the son of... Briangum bear. I can't say that word. Leg is his charioteer, so he's calling for his charioteer to pass him his spear, his gay bulga. It's like his caddy. <laughs> and the <laughs> You know, you're just in 
middle of combat with somebody, you turn to your caddy and you're like, hey, pass me spear number two. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of what squires do, too. So it's not too unusual. It's not that far off. <laughs> so anyway, uh, where was I? When Locke heard that, he gave a lunge down with his shield so that he drove it over two-thirds deep into the pebbles and sand and gravel of the ford, which makes sense because they're in a river. And then Cucullin let go of the barbed spear upwards so as to strike Locke over the border of his hauberk and the rim of his shield, and it pierced his body's covering, that is, his armor and his skin, for Locke wore a horn skirt when fighting with a man. A so what? that his father's <laughs> Oh, I said it wrong. <laughs> Sorry, he wore a horn skin. I'm reading it too fast. That doesn't that doesn't wore- clear I mean that that's a slightly clearer than a horn skirt, but I'm still not sure what that is. <laughs> I was like, huh, I didn't remember him wearing a kilt. <laughs> Uh, Locke wore a horn skin when he was fighting with a man so that his farther side was pierced clear after his heart had been thrust through his breast. I don't actually know what this refers to. Let me see if there's a footnote on it, but I highly doubt it. No, it's just giving me the reference to where it is in the Yellow Book of Lycan. Yeah, I am not sure what this is. Yep, I googled it and it's not helpful. Mm Mm-mm. A number of these are just the toyne. Yeah, that makes sense. And apparently someone with the nickname Hornskin. Oh, it's a pretty cool nickname. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's like armor made out of horn? I don't know. But anyway, Kukulin takes the Gebolga and gets it clear through him all the way through. That is enough now, said Loch. I am smitten by that. For thine honor's sake, and on the truth of thy valor and skill in arms, grant me a boon now, O Cucullin. So mind you, he has a spear through his heart, and mm-hmm. Cucullin's been stabbed through his side and through his balls. So this is the context of these last words. What boon, ask thou? Tis no boon of quarter, nor a prayer of cowardice that I make of thee, said Loch. But fall back a step from me, and permit me to rise, so that it may be on my face to the east I fall, and not on my back to the west, towards the warriors of Aaron, so that to the end no man of them shall say, if I fall on my back, it was in retreat or flight, I was before thee, for I have fallen by the gay Bolga. That I will do, answered Cucullin, for it is a true warrior's prayer that thou makest. And Cucullin stepped back, so that Locke fell on his face, and his soul parted from his body, and leg despoiled him. Cucullin cut off his head then. As you do. So, <laughs> as you do. I actually really like this passage, because I think it touches on both the absolute depravity of war, with the despoiling of body and the decapitation, but also the honor of, like, okay, you fought really well, you don't want to fall you know, on your back, you'd rather fall on your face as a as a true warrior in front of your men. And Cucullin allows that. So they're both men of honor, essentially. And then Cucullin cuts his head off. So the, the juxtaposition of it is just wonderful to me. Well, apparently that's just part of the culture is you have to have your severed heads. You gotta have your severed heads. And that is a way to keep people from coming back. Yeah. Or from, you know, you're... you're I think... I'm going to reference that lovely article again on the economy of honor. And if you cut off somebody's head, you are literally taking their knowledge and you're literally taking everything they know and you're keeping it from their people. So it's both symbolic and magical in a sense. 
I'm trying to find out if they actually, if the Celts had shrunken head technology or if they just kept it, like, rotting. I don't actually know. Oh, okay, here it is. They do not have shrunken head technology. That's unfortunate because I feel like they'd have been really into that. But a... Homebrew. Yeah. A Roman historian in the first century noted that for the most distinguished enemies of Celtic warriors, I think he's talking about Celts on the continent rather than in Ireland, because this is Mm. way, way back. Mm -hmm. They kept the heads and embalmed them in cedar oil so that they would not rot. And they actually, I'm just going to quote this whole passage. Do it. All right. So this is Diodorus Siculus in his first century historical library. They cut off the heads of enemies slain in battle and attached them to the necks of their horses. The blood-stained spoils they hand over to their attendants and striking up a paean and singing a song of victory. And they nail up these first fruits upon their houses, just as do those who lay low wild animals in certain kinds of hunting. So he's literally saying like they do the same thing with the heads of uh, their enemies in battle as people who like hunt deer and hang the head above the fireplace. Oh my gosh, it's trophy hunting. They embalm in cedar oil the heads of the most distinguished enemies and preserve them carefully in a chest and display them with pride to strangers, saying that for this head, one of their ancestors or his father or the man himself refused the offer of a large sum of money. They say that some of them boast that they refused the weight of the head in gold. Oh my gosh. So that implies that there was a... A trade economy yes, of and that these embalmed ones would be like kept for <laughs> generations and occasionally sold. And you'd go like, now if someone offered me so much gold for this head, or someone offered my grandpa so much gold for this head, but he turned it down. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Like it's horrific, but that gives me so many D and D ideas. I know it's great, isn't it? Oh my gosh embalmed heads you could have a head trade economy not exclusively that that is also what happened with actual shrunken heads except not among them it wasn't like a common practice until the europeans arrived and they were like that is so cool (laughs) and so they started paying people to make more shrunken heads and export them to europe Oh, I don't like that. No, oh, it's real like bad, but it is oh, it, it is our most hilarious. recent example, I think, of a head trading economy. Oh my gosh. See, that reminds me of how the Victorians would eat mummies. Yeah. Which is like, ooh, I don't like that either. That's just, that's very odd. I mean, okay, with that, it's like the Victorians were eating pieces of mummy. So how can we really say that old English leech books were really that much worse in terms of medicine? I mean, the British Empire did reach some, like, alarming heights of depravity. I'm not even sure that they honestly thought it did them any good or if they're just like, look what I can afford. I can afford to buy and eat mummies. Okay, but, like, I understand, like, wanting a mummy in your house to show off your wealth, but eating it? Like, no wonder there's, like, the curse of the mummy. Yeah, because you got sick with some, like, ancient bubonic plague because you ate dead mummy fingers. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it tracks. Okay, so anyway, we've got Loch's 
decapitated head at this point, which is now going on what I can only assume is Kukulin's very large trophy case at home. Mm. And a deep distress possessed Kukulin that day as he sank into swoons and faints. Thereupon, Kukulin enjoined Leg, his charioteer, to go to the men of Ulster that they should come to defend their drove. Good Leg, get thee to a main to the Ulstermen and bid them come henceforward to look after their drove, for I can defend their fords no longer. For surely it is not a fair fight nor equal contest for any man for the Morgan to oppose and overpower him and lock to wound and pierce him. So now he's getting bitchy because he's been wounded and he thinks it's an unfair fight because it was him against Loch and the Morrigan at the same time. I think when the gods are conspiring against you, you kind of have to just deal with it. I don't think that that's like a rain check kind of situation. I would argue yes, but we have a very long history and a multicultural history of heroes not taking that advice, including Odysseus, Achilles, like Hector, and Cucullin. Fair. The gods were all like, mm, I'm gonna just stick my finger in here. And they're like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's like, what are you, like, they're a god. What are you gonna do? Yeah, but I mean. Well, apparently they're gonna pitch a fight. I don't remember Odysseus, like, going up to someone and saying, like, look, this is really unfair because Poseidon's working against me. He did curse Poseidon. You can be angry at Poseidon, but you can't say, like, <laughs> hey, that didn't, that didn't count because the gods don't like me. <laughs> didn't count. Uh, I mean, he did do fairly well for himself. Didn't he have that whole speech at the end where he's like, I went through all this shit and you guys are now in my house. That sounds familiar, yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since this I wrote the count. Odyssey. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> and to be fair, Kukulin could have saved himself the trouble. Yeah. But he chose not to. Again, if a goddess wants to sleep with you, just say yes. Like, it's not... It is not worth the hassle of turning her down. Yeah. Great weariness came over Cucullin after that night, and a great thirst after his exhaustion. Then it was that the Morrigan, daughter of Imas, came from the fairy dwellings again in the guise of an old hag, with wasted knees, long-legged, blind, and lame, engaged in milking a tawny, three-teated milk cow before the eyes of Cucullin. And for this reason, she came in this fashion that she might have redressed from Cucullin, because remember, he cursed her. Mm-hmm. He said, you're not going to get any help from me. So she's still in a sore spot, presumably physically, but also emotionally, magically, spiritually, however you want to say it, because he's cursed her. So that's that's another example. You could argue it's an example of Geish. For none whom Kukulin ever wounded recovered without himself aiding in the healing. Kukulin, maddened with thirst, begged her for, and I hate this translation, but I'm going to read it because it's just real bad. Kukulin, maddened with thirst, begged her for a milking. Wow. <laughs> that's, um... <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. Like, thanks, Faraday. Like, we really didn't need that, but all right. So she gives him some milk. Kukulin drinks it from, you know, the cow. May this be a cure in time for me, old crone, quoth Kukulin, and the blessings of the gods and non-gods upon thee, said he, and one of the queen's eyes became whole again. He begged for... I I can't read that. I'm not going to read that. He... (laughs) Is... Is it the same thing? <laughs> he begged for the milking of another teat. 
I mean, that's actually slightly better. Because at least this time it doesn't sound like he's the one being milked. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I hate it so much. Like, why? Why was it written like this? Anyway, she milked the cow's second teat because there's three. So, again, we're getting the Irish motif of, you know, three things. Mm -hmm. And he drank it and said, may she straightaway be sound that gave it. And then her head was healed so that it was whole. And again, this happens one more time. And he drinks the milk from the cow's third teat and (laughs) a blessing on thee of gods and non-gods, a woman. Good is the help and succor that thou gavest me. And her leg was made whole. Now these were their gods, the mighty folk, and these were their non-gods, the folk of husbandry. And the queen was healed forthwith. Well, Cucullin, thou said to me, said the Morrigan, that I should not get healing nor succor from thee forever. And so she's sticking it in his face. And so he replies, well, had I known it was you, I would never have healed you. So he's bitter about this and she's making a point. Had I known, that's the whole point, guy. Yep. Then it was that she alighted in the form of a Roston crow on the bramble that grows over Greylach Dolar, which is the stamping ground of Dolar. And ominous is the appearance of a bird in this place above all, quoth Cucullin. Hence cometh the crow's bramble as a name for this place. So this is the whole episode of the Morrigan and how that works. <laughs> I feel like this really so. just showcases Cucullin's poor judgment because like as soon as it he found really out it does. was the Morrigan, he should have said like, Oh, sorry. Like, maybe we can work something out instead of being like, well, I'll step on your head. (laughs) But there you go. And actually, on that note, we we were talking earlier about how when the Morrigan shows up and wants to have a go with you, she's giving you a symbol of her victory. And so Kokolan refuses this. And so when he does, it's a hint, hint, wink, wink, foretelling that this is the war and the battles are not going to go in his favor. So yes, this is old Irish foreshadowing, if you will. Mm-hmm. As legs stood there, he described something. So we're skipping over to the charioteer, and he sees a single man coming from the northeastern quarter athwart the camp of the four grand provinces of Aaron, making directly for him. A single man here cometh towards us now, Cucullin, cried Leg. But what manner of man is he? Cucullin asked. Not hard to say, Leg answered. A great, well-favored man, then. Broad, close-shorn hair upon him, and yellow and curly, his back hair. I'm not sure if this is, like, the hair on the back of his head, or if it's literally, like, his back that is covered in hair. A green mantle is wrapped around him, a brooch of white silver in the mantle over his breast, a kirtle of silk fit for a king, with red interweaving of ruddy gold he wears, trussed up upon his fair skin and reaching down to his knees. A great one-edged sword is in his hand, a black shield with hard rim of silvered bronze thereon. A five-barbed spear is in his hand, and a pronged by-spear beside it. Marvelous in sooth, the feats and the sport and play that he makes, but no one heeds, no nor he gives heed to anyone. No one shows him courtesy, nor does he show courtesy to anyone, as if none saw him in the camp. In sooth, O Fosterling, said Cucullin, it is one of my friends of fairykin that comes to take pity upon me, because they know the great distress that I am now in, all alone, against the four grand provinces of Erin, 
and the plunder of the kind of cooling. Killing a man on the ford each day in the fifth of each night for the men of Aaron grant me not a fair fight in the terms of single combat from noon each day, which remember this is true because Maeve said, we're not going to do the whole honorable combat thing anymore. I'm sending assassins basically after you at night. Mm -hmm. So this fairy folk person is Lug. And let's see. I don't think this actually establishes who Lug is. So the backstory here that listeners need to know is that Lug, so there's Leg, which is his cherry tear, and Lug, who is basically one of the head honcho gods. This is his dad. So his dad is popping down to check up in on his son. Okay. (laughs) I mean, the Morrigan just did him dirty. Yeah, that's true. And so he's still in a bad way. So when the young warrior was come up to Concolin, he bespoke him and condoled with him for the greatness of his toil and the length of time with which he had passed without sleep. This is brave of you, O Concolin, quoth he. It is not much at all, answered Concolin. But I will bring thee help, said the young warrior. Who art thou? asked Cucullin. So he recognizes that this is a fairy, but he's not quite sure which one of the Tuthididanon it is. Mm-hmm. Thy father from fairy am I, even Lug son of Ethliu. Yea, heavy are the bloody wounds upon me. Let thy healing be speedy. Sleep a while, O Cucullin, said the warrior. Thy heavy fit of sleep by Ferta in Lerga, the grave mound on the slopes. Till the end of three days and three nights, I will oppose the hosts during this time. He examined each wound so that it became clean. Then he sang him the men's low strain, which is, I suppose, a type of chant that was traditional in this Wait, is that in this culture. Men's low strain? Three words? Yes. Okay. Yes, men's low strain, till Cucullin fell asleep. Then Lug recited the spell chant of Lug. So this is some fairy magic that he's casting on his son. Accordingly, Cucullin slept his heavy fit of sleep at the grave mound of the slopes till the end of three days and three nights, and well he might sleep. Yet as great as was his sleep, even so great was his weariness. From the Monday before Samhain, just summer's end, Halloween, even to the Wednesday after spring beginning, Cucullin slept not for all that space except for a brief snatch after midday, leaning against his spear and his head upon his fist and his fist clasping his spear and his spear on his knee. So he's like sitting up, like trying to stay awake or Mm. trying to sleep, sitting upright. But hewing and cutting, slaying and destroying four of the five grand provinces of Aaron during that time. Then it was that the warrior from fairy laid plants from the fairy wreath and healing herbs and put a healing charm into the herbs and stabs into the sores and gaping wounds of Cucullin so that Cucullin recovered during his sleep without ever perceiving it. So his dad from the realm of fairy from the other world shows up and sings him a lullaby so that he falls into an enchanted sleep so he can actually heal. And he basically has not slept for months, essentially. So from Halloween to spring beginning, which holiday would that be? Uh, The equinox. Let's see. I don't remember the name of the holiday. Neither do I. It's in March. So it's the 20th of March in, in modern reckoning. Well, it changes every year, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's a it's relatively about the same time. Oh, it's that word that I can never pronounce. Estre? I can't do it. It's from Ostara, the goddess Ostara. It's Easter. Oh, Eostra. Yeah, Eostra. So basically, it's saying that he stayed awake from Halloween to Easter time, essentially. So from November to 
March, essentially. Although the Celtic quarter days, the ones that include Samhain, don't have one there because they're it's slightly different. So their beginning of spring is Imbol, or however you say mm-hmm, that. Imbolc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the IPA, and I honestly cannot even pronounce that, but it's spelled <laughs> I-M-B-O-L-C, and it's... I think it's Imbolc. That's how I've always heard it said. That sounds right. Yeah. At the beginning of February. Okay, there we go. So from from November to February. So he's had basically three days sleep from his dad and then a nap on his spear in all that time. That's a long season. (laughs) Okay. So now we'll get into the episode of his first warp spasm. So all of this has gone on and he's been fighting sort of unfairly. But then the hero and the champion, Kukulin, took his battle array of battle... That is literally what it says. His battle array of battle and contestants and stripe. <laughs> Much sword, very battle. <laughs> I feel like this translator could have done a slightly better job in some of these parts. Yeah, he really could have. But, you know, it's, it's the, the constant decision of whether to be literal or go with the spirit of the text, which, which is hard to balance sometimes. I mean, you okay. could at least use, like, a synonym or something if you have to say battle twice in one phrase. I mean, you could. You really could. His, you know, his battle array of war. Yeah, it's better. You could have done that. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, so this is sort of, again, we already know that Kukulin is hot stuff. And this is also going to describe what he's wearing, just so readers get the real picture of what these women are, you know, so in awe over. And remember, he is a scrawny teenager with grass on his face. Exactly. So here we go. He put on 27 skin tunics, waxed like board, equally thick, which used to be under strings and chains and thongs against his white skin. (laughs) What? That's what it says, my dude. That he might not lose his mind nor his understanding when his rage should come. He put on his hero's battle girdle over it outside of hard leather, hard tanned of the choice of seven ox hides of a heifer so that it covered him from the thin part of his sides to the thick part of his armpit. It used to be on him to repel spears and points and darts, lances and arrows for they were cast from him just as if it were stone or rock or horn that they stuck. So this is like awesome armor that just deflects all kinds of missiles. Yeah, because it's several layers deep. He's like a leather burrito. <laughs> yeah. How he's fighting in this, I don't know. But it gets even better because then he put on his apron, skin-like silken, with its edge of white gold variegated against the soft lower part of his body. He put on his dark apron of dark leather, well tanned, of the choice of four ox hides of a heifer, with his battle girdle of cow skins about it over his silken skin-like apron. Then the battle royal hero took his battle arms of battle. Okay, I can't read this phrase again. (laughs) 
Okay, anyway, this is what he's carrying in his battle arms of battle. I swear it's like four times in this paragraph. Anyway, his ivory-hilted, bright-faced weapon. With his eight little swords, he took his five-pointed spear. With his eight little spears, he took his spear of battle. With his eight little darts, he took his javelin. With eight smaller javelins, his eight shields of feats. With his round shield, dark red, in which a boar that would be shown at a feast would go to the boss, so it would be bossed up, it would be turned into the shield, it would be covered on the shield, with its edge sharp, keen, very sharp round about it, so that it would cut hairs against the stream for sharpness and keenness. When the warrior did the edge feat with it, he would cut equally with his shield and with his spear and with his sword. So his shield is just as edged as his blade. Yeah, I'm imagining the edge feat being uh, throwing your shield like Captain America. You know, that is, at this point, the best way to picture it, because Kukulun's just wild. And Okay, just picture Captain America before his transformation, dressed up like a Yankee, with his shield, Bucky Barnes behind him, with a golf caddy full of weapons, because that is basically what this is. Now, I admit that... I have questions about who qualifies as a Yankee exactly, but I have not seen anyone up north wearing (laughs) 20 layers of leather. I don't know, man. Oh, my gosh. But apparently, like, because he's got, you do want to have extra javelins. So that makes sense. He's got extra darts. He's got extra javelins. But apparently he's got, like, a bunch of backup. He's got eight backup swords as well, all of which I presume Leg has to carry around. Yeah, like, of course. Either that, or they're just, like, secreted in little pockets around his... <laughs> That's why he's got 27 layers I can't on. get past that. How is he moving in 27 leather tunics? I don't know. Maybe these. Maybe it's referring to, like, his outfit is made up of 27, like, hides. That would make more sense. That's all that I can think of here. But, like, it has tunics in the plural, so... And they're waxed like board. Yeah. Like you wax a surfboard. So it's like going to be incredibly stiff. Yeah, that, that is... Yeah. <laughs> You're having a crisis over this. Like, okay, I'm, I'm picturing like a kid trying to wear every shirt he owns at once, except those shirts are actually <laughs> leather armor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. When you mod Skyrim too much. <laughs> <laughs> Then he put on his head a ridged helmet of battle, from which there was uttered a shout of a hundred warriors with a long cry from any corner and angle of the battlefield. I have multiple questions. Okay. Don't you mean his battle helmet of battle? No, this one says, okay, hang on. It says ridged helmet of battle and contest and strife. Oh, okay, fair. Yeah. Also, did you say that the helmet screamed? I think it's referring to, like, Everybody around him, once he puts on his helmet, everyone's like, yeah, go Cullen. Because the next line, nope, nope, it's the helmet. It's actually the helmet. Because the next line says, they're used to cry from it equally goblins and sprites and ghosts of the glen and demons of the air before, above and around, wherever he used to go shedding the blood of warriors and enemies. There was cast over him his dress of concealment by the garment of the land of promise that was given to him by his foster father in wizardry. So Fergus. So he's got like a cloak of invisibility, his 27 layers of armor, a helmet that is screaming, 
Yeah, that's gotta be like just a ridiculous armor See, check. I feel penalty. like this is one of those um those min maxing players mm-hmm. in D D who's like, No no no, no, I can wear my cloak of invisibility and my screaming helmet of terror at the same time. I don't get disadvantage on stealth checks because the cloak has a plus whatever and I can still wear the helmet. Yeah, I feel like, like a, I feel like that's what's going yeah. on. Having a screaming helmet and an invisibility cloak does seem to kind of cancel itself out. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> this isn't going to work. He's totally decked out in all of this stuff. And then came the first contortion upon Kukulin, so that it made him horrible, many-shaped, wonderful, strange. His shanks shook like a tree before the stream, or like a rush against a river. Every limb and every joint and every end and every member of him from his head to his foot. It made a rage of his body inside his skin. His feet and his shins and his knees became so that they were from behind him, so they twist around. His heels and his calves and his hams came so that they were in the front. The front sinew of his calves came so that they were on the front of his shins, so that every huge knot of them was as great as a warrior's clenched fist. He really needs to slow down on the steroids. Mm -hmm. The temple sinews of his head were stretched so that they were on the hollow of his neck, so that every round lump of them, very great, innumerable, could not be equaled or measured. It was as great as the head of a month-old child. This is a horrific image (laughs) that you're crafting here. This is why I really, really like his warp spasm, because you see this kid who can't grow a beard turn into this thing. Covered in bulges, apparently. (laughs) Yes. It's like his veins and his knots and his muscles are just, like, popping. Then he made a red bowl of his face and of his visage on him, so I'm guessing... Oh, nope, this is still describing how he's contorting himself. Did you say bowl? Like, B-O-W-L? Yeah, like his face is curving in. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought you meant. Yep. He swallowed one of his two eyes into his head so that from his cheek a wild crane could hardly have reached in it to drag it from the back of his skull. The other sprang out till it was outside on his cheek. His lips were marvelously contorted. He drew the cheek from the jawbone so that his gullet was visible. His lungs and his lights came so that they were flying in his mouth and in his throat. He struck a blow like a lion with the upper palate of the roof of his skull so that every flake of fire that came into his mouth from his throat was as large as a weather's skin. I don't know what that means. Well, a weather is a sheep. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Like, a, okay. like it's a young castrated ram or something like that. Well, apparently when he's spitting, every, like, chunk of spit is as big as one of those young rams. His heart was heard striking like lightning against his ribs and like the roaring of a bloodhound at its food or like a lion going through bears. There were seen the palls of the bave and the rain clouds of poison and the sparks of fire in the very red clouds and then vapors over his head with the boiling of fierce rage that rose over him. His hair curled round his head like the red branches of a thorn in the gap of Atala. Through a royal apple tree under the royal fruit had been shaken from it. Hardly would an apple have reached the ground through it, but an apple would have fixed on every single hair therein for the twisting of the rage that rose from his hair above him. So even his hair is like busting out and curling. Alright, so are we meant to assume that he's physically larger? I would presume so, because he's like, he's like, he's hulking out, man. So I feel like that might explain the outfit. 
I that would make sense because it does say that it is protecting him while he's in this rage. Yeah, and like you said, the the girdle went from like down on his sides all the way up, so like it covers most of his torso. And yeah. maybe it's twenty seven tunics that are like stitched together into one giant <laughs> tunic, so that it fits. He literally when he turns into huge. the Hulk. Oh my gosh, that would make sense. It would also explain how um, he has lumps on his neck as large as a baby's head, and yet yeah. he's still able to, like, function. Yeah. The hero's light rose from his forehead, so that it was as long and as thick as a warrior's whetstone, so that it was equally long with the nose, till he went mad in playing with the shields, in pressing upon his charioteer to get in the host. As high, as thick, as strong, as powerful, as long as the mast of a great ship uh, was the straight stream of dark blood that rose straight up from the very top of his head, so that it, it made a dark smoke of wizardry like the smoke of a palace when the king comes to equip himself in the evening of a wintry day. I'm sorry, he's fountaining blood from the top of his head? <laughs> yes, yes. Yep. Don't you need that, Kukulin? <laughs> Not when he's, like, hulking out, I suppose. Okay, mind you, there's also a hero's light coming from his eyes. Like, he, his eyes are glowing and there's blood constantly raining around him. I wonder if anyone's drawn this. There is, in fact, there was, like, a graphic novel of this. And so there is a depiction of this. And it is quite terrifying. Yeah, I believe that. I want to see it. <laughs> After that contortion wherewith Kukulin was twisted, then the hero of Valor sprang into his scythed battle chariot with its iron points and its thin edges, with its hooks and its hard points, with its sharp points of a hero, with their pricking goads and nails of sharpness that were on shafts and thongs and cross pieces and ropes. Ten kings over seven fifties did Kukulin slay in Breslev Moor, and an innumerable number besides of dogs and horses and women and boys and people of no consequence and rabble. So he's just slaughtering. Yeah, there's no control over himself. Yeah, to the point where there did not escape one man out of three of the men of Ireland without thigh bone or half his head or one eye broken or without being marked forever. And he came from them after giving them battle without wound or bloodstain on himself or on his servant or on either of his horses. I refuse to believe that. He's obviously <laughs> bloodstained because he's shooting blood out of his head. <laughs> yep. Fair indeed, the boy who came then to show his form to the host, that is, Cucullin. The appearance of three heads of hair on him, dark against the skin of his head, blood red in the middle, a crown of yellow gold which covers them, a fair arrangement of his hair, so that it makes three circles round the hollow of his back of his head, so that each hair was disheveled, very golden, excellent, in long curls, distinguished, fair colored over his shoulders like gold thread. A hundred ringlets, bright purple of red gold, gold flaming round his neck, a hundred threads mixed with carbuncle round his head. Four dimples in each of his two cheeks. That is a yellow dimple. This is like his war paint. Um, so a yellow one, a green one, a blue one, and a purple one. Seven gems of brilliance of an eye in each of his two royal eyes. Seven toes on each of his two feet. Seven fingers on each of his two hands with the grasp of hawk's claws. With the seizure of griffin's claws in each of them separately. Ta-da! Good God. <laughs> That is Kukulin's warp spasm, and that is why I love this story so much, is because you go from, like, Fedelm, and you go from, like, oh, we're not going to fight Kukulin because he doesn't have a beard, and then he's like, I'm not going to sleep with the Morrigan, and now this. Yeah, that's quite a <laughs> shift. 
Yes. Yes, indeed. There's a fantastic little poem about this, which I'll read part of it because we don't have to go through the entire thing. But people are looking upon him and they're like, oh, dang, this is this is a lot. If this be the twisted one, by him shall men's bodies fall. Shrieks there shall be round the lists. Deeds to tell of shall be wrought. Stones shall be engraved from him. Kingly martyrs shall increase. Not well have ye battle found on the slopes with this wild hound. If this be the twisted one, men shall soon be slain by him. Neath his feet shall corpses lie under bushes, mantles white. Now the wild man's form I see, nine heads dangling by his side. Shattered spoils he has, behold, ten heads as his treasure great. And your women too, I see, raise their heads above the lines. I behold your pussyant queen makes no more move to engage in fight. Were it mine to give advice, men would be on every side. That they soon might end his life if this be the twisted one. So it's it's quite the picture of, of Cucullin and there's some, there's some more beautiful verses on this. I encourage you to look at it um, if you are so inclined. But as this is happening, finally, thereupon Maeve summoned Fergus to go forth and contend and fight with Cucullin to drive him off from and there Fergus said, on the ford. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you, would, you would figure this. However, he says, ill would it befit me to fight with a callow young lad without any beard, and mine own disciple, the fosterling of Ulster, the foster child that sat on Conquivir's knee, the lad from the Red Branch. So again, we go back to, yeah, he's hulked out, but uh, he still doesn't have a beard, so uh, I'll pass. I feel like that's just an excuse at this point. (laughs) I mean, it really is. They're like, we're not going to do this anymore. But Maeve gets him to fight. It's the, the classic example of women goading on their men to go fight. And so Fergus does. And when now Cucullin saw him coming nigh, this is what he said. Welcome at thy arrival and thy coming, O my master Fergus. Because this is one of his foster fathers, essentially. This is one of the, the men who's mentored him. Truly, given we esteem thy greeting, Fergus answered. It is truly given for thee, O Fergus, said Cucullin. And thou shalt have a night's lodging here this night. Success and a blessing attend thee, O fosterling. And not for hospitality from thee have I come, but to fight and do battle with thee. So Cucullin's like, oh, hey, Fergus. I haven't seen you forever, and Fergus is like, yeah, I've, I'm here to fight you. A year before this tale, before the expedition of the Toyn, Alil had found Fergus going to a tryst with Maeve on the hillside in Krukhan with his sword on a branch nearby him, and Alil had torn the sword from his sheath and put a wooden sword in its stead, and vowed he would not restore him the sword until came the day of great battle, when the men of Arryn would clash in great battle on the cattle raid. It is a perilous thing for thee to come to a place of fight, O oh my master Fergus, without thy sword. So he's he's walked into this with a wooden sword in his scabbard. And Fergus said, It matters not to me, O foster thing, for had I a sword in this, it would never cut thee nor be plied on thee. But by the honor and training I bestowed upon thee, and the Ulsterman and Conquivir bestowed, by the troth of valor and knighthood I adjure thee, give way before me in this day in the presence of the men of Aaron. So he's saying, I'm not going to fight you. Mm-hmm. Truly, I am loath to do that, answered Cucullin, to flee before any one man on the cattle spoil of cooling. Nay, then, it is not a thing to be taken amiss by thee, said Fergus, for I in my turn will retreat before thee when thou wilt be covered with wounds and dripping with gore and pieced with holes on the Battle of the Toyn. And I alone shall turn in flight before thee, and so will all the men of Aaron flee before thee in a like manner. So zealous was Cucullin to do whatever made for Ulster's wheel, that he had his chariot brought to him, and he mounted his chariot, and he went into confusion and flight from Fergus in the presence of the men of Aaron. So they've made a deal here with, we're not going to fight each other, because... This is basically a father-son duo. 
When the men of Aaron saw that, they were joyful, and what they said was this, He has fled from thee, he has fled from thee, O Fergus. Pursue him, pursue him quickly, O Fergus, so that he does not escape thee. Nay then, said Fergus, I will pursue him no further. It is not like a tryst. Yon fellow is too speedy for me. However little ye may make of the flight I have put him to, none of the men of Aaron, nor even of the four or of the five provinces of Aaron, could have obtained much as that on the Kalkrich of cooling. For this cause, till the men of Aaron take turns in single combat, I will not engage again with this man. Here we have the white battle of Fergus on the Toyn thus far, and it is for this cause it is called the white battle because no blood or weapons resulted therefrom. Then they continued in their march past Kukulin and pitched camp in Creek Rios. And that is what we've got for this episode. All right. <laughs> That is where we're at. So, like, we have this entire giant transformation, and in the end, nothing actually comes of it. But it is quite the glorious little spectacle to try and understand and figure out. And also, we find out that when he's hulking out, he is completely indiscriminate in his slaughter, because apparently... Yes. (laughs) He not only kills warriors, but men, women, children, and animals that just happen to be nearby. Me thinks the Skywalker, the, the Anakin Skywalker meme is <laughs> is going to be invoked. Oh, oh, that one, yes. Oh, that one. Oh, the men, the women, and the children too. He slaughters everybody, everybody. Uh, so yes, there you go. And there was one other thing I wanted to highlight about the Morrigan Kakulan, and this is from Aspects of the Morrigan by Rosalind Clark. And what I wanted to highlight is Kukulin and the Morrigan seem more like equal adversaries than like a goddess and a mortal. Kukulin, of course, has a god for a father, which somewhat accounts for their equality. Also, Kukulin refuses to be treated as an inferior by anyone. He's accustomed to supernatural friends and opponents. But aside from these things, the personal relationship between them may be a deliberate literary advice brought in by the tellers of the cycle to increase the dramatic interest. The Morrigan is one of the more powerful and fearful figures whom Kukulin can test his powers. One might suggest that the equality between the goddess and the hero is the result of the declining pagan mythology in which the gods are being demoted to the status of human heroes. This is unlikely, however, if we look at the Odyssey and expression of a completely pagan mythology, we find a similar relationship between a goddess and a hero. Athena and Odysseus are both noted for their wisdom. They respect each other's judgment. Kukulin and the Morrigan likewise resemble each other. Both are violent, contentious, and destructive. Kukulin may seem more like the Morrigan's equal than Odysseus may seem the equal of a Athena, but this has more to do with the prudence of Odysseus's character with the difference in the relative status of the two heroes. Which checks out. It is the stubborn pride that angers the Morrigan and makes her fight against Kukulin. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, there's also a fantastic article, Kukulin, God, Man, or Animal by Eric Larson, which I will, I will link to both of these articles in the blog post for the week. So if you're interested in reading them, they will be there. You can find them there. But it brings up the question of who is Kukulin anyway, because he is at least half divine. His father is Luke. His father is a god. So, and as we see, he's got this torque spasm thing. And it's like, how can we expect anybody to contend with Kukulin? Fergus definitely doesn't. He's He makes deal with him. Uh, and he gets that privilege because he was a foster father to Kukulin. So... Kukulin's little complaint that it wasn't a fair fight between the Morrigan and uh, Loch 
is to me complete crap because he is basically a demigod. Yeah. He's he's a Hercules or a Heracles or however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, it seems more like the Morrigan was just evening the playing field. Yeah, pretty much. That's how I read it, especially because she's like I'm I'm willing to give you favor, you know, symbolically by having sex with you and he's he says no and his pride is eventually his downfall. Well. But there you go. That is part three of the toying. We're get, we're really getting into it, and then next time we're gonna get into like what the what the torque spasm actually looks like in battle. Did we not just do that? Oh no, that was just the description of it. Okay. Yeah. No, because next up we're going to see, and it's like the the big culminating episode of the toying is his foster brother shows up. And the two of them fight it out, and he's in his warp spasm while this is happening. So that's like the big culminating epic fight at the end of the story. All right. So we'll do that. We'll do that next time. Okay. Before we get into our ratings and things, do you have do you have anything that you want to add? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Let's get into it. What say you? Best dialogue. I've got mine. You go first, then. Okay. I mean, my favorite is, it's not for the ass of a woman that I showed up here. That's right. I forgot that line. That's a good one, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially because if you, when you understand that that is the old Irish intent, even though it's it can be translated very stuffily, mm-hmm. it really just hits home of how disrespectful Cucullin is being to a goddess, especially when you contextualize that with him having gotten it on with Fedelm, the prophetess, at the beginning of right. the story. Right, like, that's what I was thinking. Like, didn't you... <laughs> Are you sure? You didn't have any problems with that a couple chapters ago. Okay, but he he did have a previous relationship with Fedelm. Fair. So... I mean, I'm tempted to say that the best dialogue is from the helmet, but... <laughs> That totally counts. Just rampant screaming. But I, th- I think you're right. It's definitely the the Cucullin rejecting the Morgan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Best death. We have a lot of death in this one, but I don't know if there's necessarily a best death. Yeah, I think the only one that really stands out is Loch and his, like, final request. <gasps> Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Especially because Kukulun honors yeah. it. Because he, he really didn't have to because Maeve sent all those assassins. But he did honor Loch individually as opposed to just having him as one of the enemy. It does also have that Song of Roland feel where like people can have complete conversations and lengthy digressions while bleeding out on the battlefield. I love that so much. We should do the song of Roland at some point. It is wild. Oh, we should. We should. I think that's my favorite trope in like medieval and ancient literature is the complete conversation and monologuing Mm -hmm. when you're dying. Okay. D and D game. Where do we start? I want a screaming helmet. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Magic item, screaming helmet. It must give disadvantages on, on stealth checks, though. Yes. I mean, of course. It must, absolutely. 
There is no excuse for that. What else? We did talk about Merdrum and we did talk about the human cry, which were digressions, but you can still incorporate those. Yes, true. I think maybe this is just me getting too narrative heavy and being too much of a historian here, but I think a lot of D&D campaigns could be improved by having legal consequences. Because if you have a party of murder hobos, if you give them legal redress for it's okay to murder somebody so long as you go about it in xyz ways that could be way more compelling than you get arrested by the town guard when i ran campaigns in undergrad i always just used the normal like arrest and trial thing as legal consequences whenever when they did something particularly egregious mm-hmm. which is always mm-hmm. fun because then it's you get that moment where you can have someone read off the charges and go over like everything <laughs> that the players have done wrong oh that's great but i feel like it would be better to have an established like legal code mm-hmm. that's not just a knockoff of modern american courts right right and you know you could also you could turn that sort of legal system into a small mystery quest like a merdrum okay you all wake up in the tavern or whatever and there's a dead guy you'd better figure out who the heck actually killed this guy or else all y'all are going to be paying a pretty heavy fine that at level two you don't have the money for oh that's a really good that would be great as like a, a <laughs> early early in the campaign yeah 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 <sighs> so hey there you go starting starting session idea there that's it's a a twist on the you meet in a tavern of course the problem with incorporating these kinds of unfamiliar legal systems is that you need players who are invested enough to actually read the setting documents you give them true true or if you want to Another solution that I typically do is I will throw in an in-character explanation of what's going on. Mm. So instead of having them have to read about the legal system, they all wake up or they all wake up from a drunken stupor as the city guard comes crashing in, finding the body, and they all go, okay, y'all are under arrest Unless you guys can prove who did this, and then they have to explain, like, how this legal system works. Or if one of your characters comes from that area and the rest don't, that to me is a great way to do it. Because there's nothing more fun to a player, in my opinion, than getting to share information that the rest of the table doesn't know. That's true. So if that's in their backstory, and you can say, yeah, you know about the legal system, then... They can explain that, and instead of it being, you know, exposition, it turns into background. Why does that player know that thing? What background in law do they have? Or what background in criminal, you know, expertise do they have? You could also have, like, a, to make that more engaging, you could have the a summary of the legal situation, like, written up on a little card, and you pass it to the player who knows it, and you're like, you have to explain this. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, play with play with the legal system. Have some fun with that. What else? I mean, you can definitely use the warp spasm. I think if you just made Kukulin one of the big bad evil guys. Yeah, and he's definitely a villain <laughs> because he is basically a weapon of mass destruction. He really is. Because then how great would it be if your characters get into combat with him and he's just this kid without a beard and then when they think they've knocked him out, it kicks in. And next thing you know, uh-uh, you're not out of this fight. Mm-hmm. Now you're down a whole bunch of spell slots, and this guy just got back up, and his, like, 
face is popping out of his head. That could be fun. Yeah. You could incorporate the Morgan. Yes. Uh, whether you want to incorporate her in the way that this story does depends on just how comfortable you are with your players. Oh, I wasn't thinking in that way at all. I was thinking of like customizing the Raven Queen to be to be more like the Morrigan or even the threat of, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. If you had a really contentious warlock patron relationship, mm-hmm. you could do something like that. Anything else? I mean, I think we already mentioned the heads. Oh my gosh, yes, the heads. Oh, yes. The, how did I forget the heads? Yeah, you need to incorporate the head trading economy in your game. I love that. That's gruesome and gross and fantastic. I think it would really, really add texture to a particular setting if the wealthy had human heads or humanoid heads. <laughs> hmm mm-hmm. That was so close oh to gosh. a spit take. <laughs> Because, well, I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, kobolds or something have human heads. And then you went, the wealthy. And I was like, oh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, like, if you go to the Duke's house and they have, like, humanoid heads mounted over their fireplace. And they're like, yes, I killed him in battle. And then uh, taxidermified Gosh. Oof. Or you could do it like um, Dragonborn if you wanted to take it that way. You could could make it like a, oh, yes – these are all the enemies of, you know, the dragonborn that I've killed. And you could you could make it like a racial conflict that's been ongoing or like even just if it's not racial and you don't want to spin it that way, you can make it, I mean, like you said, just a bunch of human heads and the Duke's like, yeah, or like that one, you know, that's a human, that's a tiefling, you know, so on and so forth. That's a half orc. That'd be pretty brutal. And imagine like if you get in good with them. Then they're like, let me show you my chest of special cedar heads. Like cedar embalmed heads. This is this is an elf my grandfather killed. Oh no. What if what if you had to do like again, like a starting quest thing here? Your players are a group of hired mercenaries and they have a chest that they're meant to deliver. But the the thing is, is if one of them opens the chest, it's just a head. They're delivering a head. And then, then what do your players do? They have to figure out, okay, what is with, like, why is someone being paid for a head? Why is it encased like this? Mm -hmm. Like, who the heck is our employer really? That would be fun. And if you make it like a, a normalized part of culture in one area of your setting, Mm -hmm. you could have that Duke offer to pay them in heads. Oh my gosh. Yes. Or just say that, like, he, he will, I will reward you greatly if you do X, Y, and Z. And then when they come back, he's like, here's that elf I was showing you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's worth its weight in gold. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? That would be hilarious. You could do, like, a whole highwayman thing. That's amazing. Okay, yes. Those are, this has been a really rich one for, uh, for D&D ideas. Yes. All right. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Do we have any echoes in, in modern culture? I mean, we do keep referring to Kukulan as hulking out. That's very, very true. I don't think that's a deliberate one, but it is the best analogy that we have to modern culture, I think. Yeah, and you know, I can't swear that the... Who, I forget who invented the Hulk. Uh, whoever they were, they, they might have been inspired by Irish myth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who knows? Although, judging by the uh, 
lack of subtlety in the early days of comics, they probably wouldn't. He probably would have been like Bruce O'Bannon or something and had a really unpl- unfortunate, <laughs> uh, stereotypical accent. <laughs> Can you imagine the Hulk with an Irish accent? Oh my gosh. Oh man. Also, shout out to Kyle, one of my course mates at Trinity, who decided that he wants to, he, he actually, he genuinely wants to pitch the Toyn as a film done entirely in Old Irish with subtitles, which would be an endeavor, but he wants to cast Cucullin as, like, the skinny little kid that he actually is depicted mm-hmm. as, and then, like, turn him into a hulking out thing, which I think would be an incredible thing to see on film, and absolutely horrifying. I'd watch that. Oh, yeah, totally. I feel like we are so used to seeing the superheroes who are all so perfect or they become such like quote unquote perfect monsters. Like the Hulk is not that grotesque looking. Like he's a big guy and he's green. Right. You know, and then you've got Thor who's like an Aryan superhero. And what else? I mean, Steve Rogers is like, you know, specimen. Yeah, he's supposed to be like the 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 perfect American. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like where are the monster heroes, you know? I mean there are some. I think. I'm more familiar with Marvel, so all the ones I'm thinking of are in Marvel. I would honestly characterize the Hulk as a monster hero. That's true, but he doesn't look grotesque. He's not, like, scary to look at. That's true. Also, by the way, I just checked. Uh, the Hulk is one is apparently one of Stan Lee's creations, and Stan Lee says he was inspired by Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not Cocolin. Oh, that checks out. Oh, disappointing. Makes sense, but disappointing. I still want to turn this into a video game. I still think this would be great. That's true. It'd be so great. All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Terminology. We had Hue and Cry, and we we had Merdram as well. Yes, those both need to be in the dictionary. Those are great. Those are fantastic. Um, the... What is that? What is the actual word for the warp spasm? Uh, let me look it up, because that's a great word. I did not realize that warp spasm was just what you called it. Well, there's a bunch of different translations for it. So there's the torque, there's the warp spasm, but there's an actual Irish Irish word for it, which is fantastic. And you can incorporate that if you want to. So let me let me just look it up real quick. Let's see. Ah, the reestrad. Reestrad is what it's called in the Irish. All right. Yeah, so warp spasm or the torque is generally what it's called. Street smarts! Don't turn down a goddess if she's asking for sex. You're gonna lose the war, man. Plus, you're just gonna have a bad time in battle. And if you find out that you're talking to a deity partway through the conversation, don't just double down. Yeah, that's true. Apologize. Very true. Yeah, you know... Don't avoid fights through excuses of people not having beards. I mean... Or do, because it worked for Fergus. Yeah, also, I feel like that's almost a fair call. Because you're basically saying, like, I'm not going to fight a kid. I'm not going to fight a kid. Okay, but that's true. So, Kukulin is the exception to this rule. So, yes, that's that's valid. Uh, What else? If you're scheduling and arranging a battle... Don't do it in the middle of a stream. So true. Like, if you can pick your spot, that's not it. 
Yeah, yeah, don't do it in the middle of a stream. Also, it's okay if you've been mortally wounded. It's okay to request to your opponent that you die an honorable death. Yeah, in fact, it's encouraged. It is encouraged. Okay. I mean, my refrain for this one is don't go fighting over who's got more stuff. But then again, to be fair, the Morrigan and her animal husbandry scheme did sort of set this up. Of course, my advice for everything related to this story is always try not to be within a mile radius of Kukulin. <laughs> it's bad. It's so bad. Oh, man. Okay. Best moment. I don't know. It's like there are a lot of things that are interesting. I enjoy Kukulin falling over in the stream and Fergus with his wooden sword I thought was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, there was another one that uh, is slipping my mind. Oh, yeah, of course, the actual warp spasm description. High quality. Yeah. But I have no idea which yeah. of those is, is the best, or if none of them is the best and there's another better one. For me, it's a toss-up between the description of the warp spasm, because it's so ridiculous, and the whole back and forth between Morgan and Kukulin. Because his sulkiness about this whole thing really does remind you that he's actually a 17-year-old kid. Oh, I found that picture of Kukulin as a uh, in his warp spasm. Let me send it to you on Skype. Also, another moment in the in this I particularly liked. I'm not sure if it counts as a moment or dialogue. It's not the best either way, but I feel it deserves a, a mention. Is when Kukulin says something along the lines of, "Look, that only happened because you tricked me," and the Morgan goes like, "Yes, yes, yes." That's how that tricking people point. works. Yes, exactly. Did it go through? Yeah. It's a little pixely, but Jesus. Oh, is it? Yeah, I know. It's it's bad. It's, it's real bad. But I think it's more or less accurate to the description. Although I don't know about that skull on the arm there. I don't remember that being there. Yeah. And it looks yeah, like he's developed it, some extra eyes across his body, which I don't remember being mentioned. That's true. That's true. Hang on. There's a couple more. Yeah. I, 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 They're so horrific. I'm thinking that the uh, that the artist here basically just decided that just having big lumps of veins wasn't visually diverse enough. enough. So they, <laughs> instead they added like looks like some some extra faces and mouths and eyes instead of just yeah. bumps. Hang on. Here's another one which should look a little bit better. I don't know what the last one is, but it is from a graphic novel, so. I See mean, they're forgetting his face paint. Yeah, they well He's in the in the one on the left. He's got woad all over his body, though. That's true. That is true. Oh, and in the one on the right. Mm-hmm. I feel like these are pretty much what's described. Although if I don't think, why is his hair black in all of these? I don't know because he is described as being like a blondy sort of redhead. Yeah, like very clearly, it said something about like the red branches of his hair. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, there you go. I think the one on the far, I don't know what he's fighting in that picture, but that seems to be like the one that is most directly based on the text. Yeah. Except they left out his blood fountain. I found a girl who's got a makeup tutorial. (laughs) For this? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I encourage everyone to have a Google on on what people have come up with for um, the Reestrad, because it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yep. Oh, man. All right. So that's our best moment. 
See, that last one isn't too bad. No, that, that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's got the blood up there and the spiky hair. Oh, he, oh, I see you showed a picture of the makeup tutorial. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Anyway, hey, if you guys have depictions of Kukulam that you want to show us, whether it's like makeup artist or special effects or, you know, drawings, show us. We would love to see them. I feel like the effect is best captured by that first one, even though it's a, it's like eyes and stuff that aren't in the original. True. Like, I feel like it, it it is the best depiction of the intent. Yeah, I would agree. That's pretty spooky. Okay. The court. Do we have any? I don't think we have any new characters to add. We can always pick some, pick some other ones. I don't think any new characters other than minor ones, but there are... Mm-hmm characters who have been in the story that we haven't taken yet true let me look over who i've got so i can see you, okay so you've got Fedelm, yeah cool and Kulin's dog and i've got kakolin himself and fergus well it looks like the major thing i'm lacking in my group currently is any kind of fighter so i'm gonna take the guy who asked for an honorable death Loch. Loch. Yeah. He's awesome. Okay. Man, who else do we have in this one? Because I can't take Fergus. I've already, I've already got Fergus. I don't want Maeve. She's just so big. She was the other one I was thinking of. Yeah. I can't stand her, though. Like, she hasn't really done anything. She just sits there and like orders people around. I'm going to take Plague. I'm going to have the full set. I'm going to get Kukulin and his charioteer. All right. Now I finally get to see how his name is spelled, because I've been imagining it like the body part. <laughs> Close. L-A-E-G. That makes more sense than just calling yeah. him Leg. Leg. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize how that sounds until... Because <laughs> I'm staring at it. All right. Final rating! Well, there's a lot of good stuff here. Yep. Yeah, it balances out sort of the the slowness of the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Honestly, I'm tempted to give it a high score just because the Morgan showed up and I like her. She's the best. She's my favorite goddess, I think, overall, really. I mean, I think there's still a bit of dragging just with all the um, all the battle and stuff. Like, it gets old. True, but true. the supernatural stuff is really cool, so I... I'd say that evens out to about a seven. All right. That's what I was going to say. I was going to give it a seven. All right. Now it's easy. Easy peasy. All right. Well, there we go. So that's part three. We do still Eight. have the leech's corner. Do you have something? We do. I don't off the top of my head. Right. I could I could pick one of the charms again. I mean, I've still got a couple. Okay, go for it. Welcome to the leech's corner. All right. So this is also from near the beginning of book one of the Leech book, which means we're back up near the the top of the body. Yes, that's right. Against a purulence in the neck, which I have footnoted because I had to look it up, is a swelling full of pus. Yes. When first the swelling begins to exist, smear it soon with gall of cattle. Gall is bile. Yeah. So that's like the stomach juices, right? Yeah. Or best of an ox. It is a tried remedy. In a few nights, he will be whole. If thou wouldst know whether it be neck purulence, so now we're getting a diagnostic trick. Okay. Take an earthworm entire, 
Lay it on the place where the annoyance is, and wrap it up fast above with leaves. If it be neck-swelling, the worm turneth to earth. If it be not, the patient will be whole. Huh. Yeah. So apparently you, like, attach a worm to the neck, like, tie it on, and... Yeah. I guess this always results... Well, no. I think what you've got here is either the worm is still there in the morning... And then you're like, well, uh-huh. it was something else, and this worm thing has healed you, or, or like, you're not in any danger. Or right. the worm escapes and leaves behind some dirt. And you go like, oh, the worm is turns to dirt. That means you've got neck purulence. Well, I was going to say, like, what if, the, what if the worm just dies and, like, falls into mush? I mean... And looks like earth. It doesn't indicate how long it's going to be there, so I'm not sure if it's enough time for the worm to decay. Yeah. Ugh. So my interpretation was that, like, you know, this is back when people still thought, like, things could just spontaneously generate. Like, Earth just created True. worms, and worms could go back to Earth. And so, like, okay, if the oh, worm yeah, turns yeah, back yeah. to Earth. Oh, that checks out. That checks out. That makes a lot yeah. more sense. And the way I'm interpreting that as an actual, like event is maybe the work the earthworm gets out and there's just dirt left behind because it was a worm and it was in the dirt or it pooped then yeah do they i guess they have to do that that for some reason the the gall the gall remedy makes sense to me does it it really it really does and so I, i'm like i'm looking that up now and i'm trying to figure out why that makes sense because i know I'm pretty sure bile was was used. I'm not sure how it's healthy a, it's an it is. acid. That's true. It's an acid. There is actually more in this entry, by the way. Okay, hang on, hang on. Yeah. It helps reduce liver inflammation. It helps process fats and vitamins. Is this when it's applied to someone or just as its function in the body? I think it's with when it's ingested. But it is it is very acidic. Like stomach acid is very very acidic. So if you put that on a ball of pus, it's going to eat into that, and it can yeah, because it it breaks down fats. So that would make sense that it, it would break down pus. All right, that's fair. I don't know. Like for me, like something clicks there, but I can't put my finger on why. But anyway, keep going. Again for neck swelling, take coriander and beans, sodden together, and lay it on. Soon it removes the disease. Again, a leech dumb for the same. Take a water crab, burnt, and then rubbed small, and mingled with honey, and done on, or applied, soon he will be well. For the same again, a southern wart has been called galbanum. Say it on the neck pain, then it draweth out altogether the evil humor and the swelling. Huh. That's the end. Interesting. I don't know whether, was it beans? Coriander? And, and beans, yes. And beans. Well, that seems fairly harmless. Yeah. Like, you might as well try it. And if it doesn't work, you have lunch. I suppose so. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm trying to think of, like, why why would someone get pustules on their neck? Because the, the first thing I think of is inflamed lymph nodes, which you would be able to feel, but you wouldn't necessarily see, like, if you had a burn and got pus from it. Oh. So... I was wondering whether this refers to your lymph nodes and having like pustules like that because the bubonic plague there's three types and one, and I think in each one your lymph nodes becoming very very large and inflamed is a very big part of that. Yeah, that's that's where and the getting, name comes I mean, from. Those are the Yeah, bubos. and getting 
yeah, getting the getting pustules when you have the plague is also very common. I, don't, I was just assuming it was like a um, McCall infection. I mean, it could very well be, but like, I, I suppose that's where the problem is with this stuff is like, you're treating the symptom, but you're not identifying the cause. So would ox gall or beans be effective on one, but not the other? Possibly. Maybe that's why there's, you know, two or three different remedies. It's true. But hey, there you go. All right. Alrighty. Well, there we go. There's, there's the toying part three. <laughs> I think, I think we can finish up in one more. That's what I'm hoping for. All right. Exciting. So exciting. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Is the hue and cry. Hang on. Speaking of hue and cry. I know, right? (sighs) Ah. <sighs>